So we're considering the first half of Mark, um, the theme of which the first half deals with who is Jesus. We're kind of learning that from Mark. We'll begin reading in verse 7, Mark 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when he had heard the great things he did, came to him. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, because they were thronging him. They, they, he just had such a big crowd around him. For he had healed many, insomuch as they pressed upon him, for to touch him as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, You are the Son of God. And he immediately or straightway, straightly charged them that they should not make him known. And he goes into a, and then he went up into a mountain and called unto him whom he would. And they came to him. And he ordained twelve that they would be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach. And they'd have power to heal the sick and to cast out devils. Simon, he surnamed Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and then, of course, at the end, always at the end, Judas Iscariot, because he betrayed him, and they went into a house. Let's pray together. Our Father, I ask that you would please quiet our hearts now for a few moments and just open our eyes to see in your word wonderful things, to behold them here, to see our Lord Jesus here, and to see who he is. Even if we've walked with you for many years, we could always use a fresh glimpse of our Lord. So I pray that you would help us to see here in your word who you are, Lord Jesus, to know you better so we can follow you better, to be like these you called, to follow after you, to be with you. Help us, Lord, to do that, to draw close to you. We are, Lord, today as close to you as we choose to be. You would always choose to be closer to us. We are those who keep you at arm's length. We are those who keep you in another room, away from us. Help us, Lord, in humility to draw close to you today. We pray that you would take this word of Scripture, and I pray that you would use it to glorify yourself, to change us, to make us into mature saints. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 84 years ago tonight, it's amazing that it was October 30th, 84 years ago, Orson Welles, a young man, not yet a famous actor, who worked both in radio and film, burst onto the airwaves with a special news bulletin. Martians had invaded New Jersey. Well, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? This was the opening of a radio drama starring Wells and other actors 
who informed their audience of about 12 million that aliens had invaded the earth. Well, let me give you a little sample of what they said. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Someone's crawling. Someone or something. I can see peering out of that black hole two luminous disks. Are they eyes? It might be a face. It, it might be something's wriggling out of the shadow like gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. There, I can see the thing's body. It's as large as a bear and glistens like wet leather. But that face, it, ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and gleam like a serpent. The mouth is kind of a V-shape with saliva dripping from its rimless lips that quiver and pulsate. He said he couldn't describe it. <laughs> and then he described it, right? About 8% believed it to be true. Of course, that's what the newspapers said. The New York Times, the ever-reliable source, indicated that 20 New Jersey families rushed from their homes wearing towels over their faces. News reports from Birmingham, Alabama, said that people were gathering into groups for prayer. A woman from Boston claimed to the news that she witnessed fire from the spacecraft herself. And apparently in Orlando, Florida, churches opened their doors that night for people to come in and pray. Well, that's what the news wanted you to believe. A more recent study, in fact, just in the last few years, at the 75th anniversary of the event determined that most listeners did understand that it was a drama, not the real thing. There was no widespread panic. Some did call their local police stations. There were a few who went into hysteria because of fear of being invaded by Martians. But overall, the consensus now is that uh, the panic was actually trumped up by the print media to cause people to reject the new media, radio. Uh, the newspapers didn't want you listening to the radio. Invasion of Martians still causes people to panic. I don't know if you're aware of this, but UFO sightings, Area 51, recent polls reveal about 65% of Americans believe in aliens. More than that, some 80% of Americans believe the government is hiding information about alien life. There's even now, I guess, a Senate panel that is convened to discuss Aliens and UFO. That's the United States Senate, folks. They're talking about aliens. Back in 2019, do you remember this? It happened right before COVID. There was a plan to gather some 500,000 people down in New Mexico and Roswell to storm Area 51 to be able to drag out the corpses of those aliens that had crash-landed on our planet. And the Air Force and the Army were concerned of how they would handle with so many people showing up at their site. Well, I'm here to tell you the War of the Worlds is real. Just not like that. It's not aliens from Mars who battle Bugs Bunny with a ray gun and a green helmet and talk like this, like my Hebrew teacher. 
and I'm not making that up. The real war, the real war, is between God and Satan. And it's been going on for centuries. About 2,000 years ago, the Angel News Network, and that's what I would have called it, broadcast the news that Jesus had come to earth. We call it the Christmas story, and there wasn't widespread panic. Well, maybe not, but for a few shepherds. Most people on earth didn't even hear the news until much later. It was dramatic, but the people of earth missed it at the time, even if we celebrate it today. Jesus invaded earth. He came as a warrior on a military mission to destroy Satan and establish his rule. Don't misunderstand this. Jesus is not the sleepy baby of Bethlehem. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And while he displays the meekness that we should have as an example for us, you need to be reminded that he was holding back from exercising the full authority he had on earth during his earthly ministry. Remember, Jesus is the one who raised the dead. He's the one who turned water into wine, who spoke and the storm stopped. Jesus is the one who could feed thousands of people with a little boy's lunch. When I was younger, there was a song that was kind of popular. People would sing it. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. But my friends, the songwriter is wrong. Jesus didn't need 10,000 angels to set himself free. He could have done it all by himself. Because he rules over wind and wave. And we see here in our text, we're still kind of at the beginning of Mark's gospel. And the invasion of Jesus with his gospel message. Would you consider, number one, Jesus is our general leading us into battle. Jesus invaded Satan's territory. It says here in verse 7 that he withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea and a great multitude followed him. His withdrawal, ladies and gentlemen, is the result of his success. Jesus is not retreating. His preaching and healing ministry had such a powerful impact on the population. It includes his native Galilee. It includes the regions around Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea area, the Transjordan, and Tyre and Sidon. It's, it's a massive audience of people. Mark actually mentions it twice. You see it in verse 7, a great multitude. Look at verse 8. Again, a great multitude. The word here is plethos, and it just means a, a, a huge group of people. This would be like an audience at a large sporting event or maybe a, a massive political demonstration. There are so many people coming to Jesus the way it reads in our text, thronging him, that he actually gets into a boat. You can't throng Jesus if he's sitting out from shore a little bit. Because they were crushing him. Everybody wanted to get to Jesus. They wanted to touch him. A few years ago, um, I walked into a Walmart uh, on Thanksgiving 
evening. And I did it on purpose. I had arranged ahead of time with my brother. I said, I'm going to buy a television. I, I just wanted to experience what it's like to buy a TV at the pre-Black the pre -Black Friday sale. So Thanksgiving evening came. I walked into Walmart. I walked up, got in line, and they said, you have to take a ticket. And I took the ticket, and they said, we don't open for two hours uh, selling these. You come back in two hours with your ticket. Well, I left. While I was gone, a large line formed a very large line of people who just thought you just wait there. Well, the large line was there. I came back. I had my nephew Christian with me. I had my ticket. The guy said, you come to the front of the line. I, I walked up there and I saw the large line. I thought, well, this is, this is terrible. All these people are waiting. And then I saw the man who gave me the ticket. He walked over and he said, all right, how many of you have tickets? And this large line of people, none of them did. And I said, I have a ticket. And he goes, oh, okay, come here, come over here. And, and he cuts the, the boxes open, and he, uh, where there were all the boxes were pushed together and sealed. He cut open this pallet of boxes. He lifted off this large television, and he handed it to me, and you should have seen the faces of all the people in line. Real anger. I got out of there as quickly as I could. I, I took like a back road. Out of, uh, around the Walmart. The, I went all the way to the back of the store, around the side. These people were in an uproar. Have you heard of some of the masses of people and what they do wanting to get their cheap TV and how they just crush people in their path? This is what Jesus is actually experiencing. It's the crush of the multitude of the playthos. This multitude, this throng of people, they're crushing him because they'd heard about his ministry. I don't know that they're there for his message. I don't think they're actually that spiritual. I, I think it says here, they heard the great things he did. I think they're there for his healing ministry. But you need to understand something. This is real magnetism. Jesus is actually drawing people to himself. And it's now a large group of people, and it's in the heart of Satan country. This region of the world is Satan's country. Idumea, the reference of Edom from the south. This is historically the territory of Esau. It, it was south of Israel. Now, after the Babylonian invasion in the 6th century B.C., the Idumeans had moved northward, and the Nabataeans had taken their place. Uh, you, you might know this area because there's a very famous city that was cut into the rock by the Idumeans. Later, uh, the Nabataeans lived there. It's called Petra. It's the city of rock. And this is that ancient area. And I want you to understand, neither the Nabataeans nor the Idumeans they were not followers of, of God at all. Historically, they had rejected Jehovah and they were idol worshipers. The most famous of the Idumeans, you know pretty well from your Bible, it's a family called the Herods. The Herods were from Idumea. The Transjordan area, it says on the other side of the Jordan, that's the area to the east. And this would include the kingdom of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Those are God-fearing people, aren't they? 
Well, they hated God. And of course, by this time, the area had been conquered by the Greeks and was ruled by the Seleucid dynasty and then later by the Romans. These were godless people who followed the Greco-Roman gods. They had almost nothing in common with the Jehovah worshipers. And then you've got Tyre and Sidon. This is the kingdom of Phoenicia. And this is where we got our alphabet from. Uh, this is the northern section uh, near the Jewish tribe of Asher. Tyre and Sidon is where Jezebel came from. She was a Phoenician. Her father was a priest of a false god. She was Ahab's wife. and She was a wicked, horrible woman. This was an incredibly idolatrous region. The people there served the Baals and hated Jehovah worship. It's, it's it, Mark Carmel that Elijah and the prophets of Baal went into spiritual battle and God won the day. And this is where Jesus plants himself in the very heart of Satan country and he's preaching his gospel message and he's healing people. And now from all of this area around Galilee, You've got people coming to Jesus. They're thronging Jesus. And what is he doing? Letter B. He's displaying mastery over Satan's army of demons. Verse 10. He healed many inasmuch as they pressed upon him to touch him. Many has had plagues. And what do the unclean spirits do? When they saw him, they fell down before him and they cried saying, You are the Son of God. The demons here... They're hurting people. I think there's a connection that Mark is making between the suffering, the physical suffering of people, and their being demonized. Satan, we, we find this in the book of Job, can have power over the well-being of people. You remember that story of Job? God says to Satan, when he's uh, meeting in his divine council, he says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, does Job serve you for nothing? In other words, Job's only, Job only worships you because you blessed him. Job was wealthy. He was an important person, uh, probably a duke or, or a king himself in his region of the world at that time. He was, he was important, famous, wealthy, had a large family, uh, had a good marriage. Everything was good in his life. And, and uh, he, Satan says, maybe Job isn't so godly. So God says, fine, you, you can take away everything from Job, just spare his life. And so Job, Job is just living his life, has no idea what's coming. And Satan comes in and starts destroying Job's life. He takes away Job's wealth. Uh, servants come running up to him. Um, we were in the field and a group of an army raiders came in from this uh, tribe and they killed all your servants and they took all your, your animals and I only am left and I've come to tell you. And while he was speaking, then another comes in. I was in the field with some other animals and your servants have all been killed by these people from another tribe and, and they've taken all those animals and killed all your servants with the sword and I alone am left to tell you. And as Job is just kind of, you can imagine reeling from the information of that he's getting from these servants about how terrible things are in the middle of all of that. Then one comes and says, um, your children had all gathered for a family gathering in the home of one of your children. And a storm came 
and blew the house down and all of your children are dead. And I alone escaped and I'm here to tell you. And now Job has lost all of his wealth and he's lost his family in a day. And he has no idea who did it. He has no idea. And Job still refuses to curse God. So Satan comes along one day and God says, hey, hey, you see Job? You said he would curse me. He hasn't. He's doing pretty well. Now he's lost his family. He's lost his wealth. But he hasn't lost his godliness. And Satan says, well, skin for skin. Man will do anything for his own life. And God says, okay, all right. I'll take you up on that. I know Job. You can do anything you want to him. You just can't kill him. I can't imagine how awful Job's life became next because he was afflicted, it says, with painful boils. This is a place where you have no modern medicine. There, there is nothing to alleviate pain like we have today. And Job now is suffering. He is in deep suffering. The image of, from the book of Job is that he's wearing sackcloth. He's sitting in the dirt. He's scraping his skin with pieces of broken pottery because he's in such pain. And then in the middle of all this, his wife, who is now hurting herself, emotionally hurting, she's suffering. She comes to Job and she says, you might as well just curse God and die. Job's lost his wealth. He's, he's lost his family. He's lost his health. In some sense, he's lost his relationship to his wife. And then his three friends show up. <laughs> oh, good news. My friends are here. Well, obviously, Job, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. You're just wicked. Look at all the sins you've committed. You must have. God doesn't do this. We know that. And Job says, no, I haven't sinned. I'm telling you, I haven't sinned. I don't know why this is happening. I haven't sinned. And Satan is doing this to Job and his friends. So he's lost his wealth. He's lost his health. He's lost his children. He's lost his wife. He's lost his friends. His reputation is destroyed. His testimony is ruined. Everybody around him thinks he must be wicked for this to have happened. And if you don't believe that that actually still occurs, let me tell you, the guy who, who, who lost his family in the ocean liner back in the 19th century, who wrote, It is well with my soul, Horatio Spafford, he also lost his home and most of his wealth in the great Chicago fire. And, he, and when he was at church, his Presbyterian church friends uh, thought he, God is cursing him for his sin. This still happens. People still think this way. Job... All of it. And you know, he never finds out until it probably he gets to glory. It was all Satan the whole time. And here are these people, and they are being destroyed by the destroyer. Mark calls them unclean spirits. These are people, these are demons rather, who possess unbelievers, causing them harm. They possess unbelievers, encouraging immoral behavior. Encouraging strange behaviors. You think of the demoniac of the gatherings 
who, who was in the tombs and cut himself and cried out. And, and they were plagued with sickness because of these demons. And these people are coming to Jesus. They are seeking relief. So now they are crushing Jesus. They are pressing to onto him. We just need relief from all of this. Pleading for his help. That's what they want. We need the help of God. And in this moment, Jesus displays for all to see his power over those demons. Because even when those people touch Jesus, the demons have to leave. They come and bow before him. Jesus has mastery over them. Even the demons have to do everything he says because he enjoys dominance over those spirit world creatures. Jesus has invaded their territory and he's defeating them. This is the great spiritual Normandy. And Jesus has parachuted right down into where the enemy is and he's just wiping them out. He's destroying them. And my friends, that's our general. That's what Jesus does. He successfully wages war against Satan and his army. And it's not even a contest. Which should remind us, friends, that no power of Satan ever has power over our God. The thing you should take away from this at this point is this. I, we, we don't have a demon problem, I think, in our church, right? I don't think so. I mean, you get the babies crying in the nursery. It's not, it's not a demon problem. It's just a baby problem. Okay. Believers can't be indwelt by Satan or demons. We have the Holy Spirit. They can be demonized. That is, you can face demonic oppression. Um, like similar to what Job went through. That, that does happen. But you can't be indwelt by Satan. But do you, do you know what this tells me, though? Is that my general, the one who rules, the one who's the head of this church, he's the one out in front of us, and there's no power of Satan that can stand up to him. There's no, uh, there's no ability of the world. There's no secret that they have. There's, there, there's nothing that they can contrive that can stand against Jesus' church. The church still stands. They've tried to wipe it out for thousands of years. And in certain places, at least it seems maybe on the surface they were successful, but like fire ants, we just go underground and come back somewhere else to bite people's ankles. I mean, we're really good at that. church doesn't die. There's oppression within. There's oppression from without. Those things happen. But as long as Jesus is our captain, he can stand up in our boat and face the storm and raise his hand and say, peace, be still. And it all stops. Now, that leads us then to a thought, because if Jesus is our general, then who are we? Well, we're soldiers serving at his command. This is number two. Jesus directs you 
to serve Him. It says in verse 13, He went up into a mountain and called to Him those who He would, and they came to Him. Look at verse 14. He ordained twelve that they would be with Him. Look at verse 16. Simon, surnamed Peter, the rock. James, the son of Zebedee. John, his brother. And those He surnamed Boanerges, the sons of thunder. You have Andrew. He's the brother of Peter. Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite. We'll stop there. The calling to salvation, I think, is, is a calling to Christian service. Uh, all those who are His disciples, whether you're, they were part of the twelve or part of a larger group, Jesus said you must deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow Me. It didn't always mean for everyone leaving your home and following Jesus physically. But the idea is there. It's a, it's a calling of a life to serve Christ. Notice the connection between calling and their coming. He called them to Himself. Jesus is doing the action of inviting people to follow Him. This is what He does later in Mark 8.34. He calls the crowd along with His disciples. If any of you would come after Me, here's what you do. So Jesus is calling people. Come after Me. That's the calling to discipleship. And these followed Him. They, Mark says, they came to Him. So He calls and they come. Not everybody who Jesus calls comes. At least that's what I believe. Fight over Calvinism all day long over that. I think God calls people to Himself and they refuse to come. Mark informs us that these came to Him. This is what a disciple does initially. He comes to Jesus. And my friends, this is what you did in your salvation. God invited you to come follow Jesus, and you said, yes, I will follow Jesus. And for some of you, it was in church, and some of you, it was at home, and some of you, it was watching an evangelist on the TV, maybe, or listening to one on the radio. And I've heard some of the most fun testimonies, not only from people in our church, but from other places. In fact, some of them are on our website. Recently, I had a man who's caught up in a heresy send me an email about the heresy that he loves. He's, I won't tell you the name of the heresy, but he's all caught up in this heresy. And he, he said, uh, do, you, do you believe in my heresy? And I said, no, I don't believe in your heresy. Well, his next email was, are you saved? And I said, well, yes, I am. Thank you for asking. And he said, well, what is your testimony? I, I didn't give it to him right away. I just wanted to see if he'd keep emailing. And then I said, well, here, you can go to our website. I copied and pasted the little web uh, site place for him. You can see the testimonies of people. I said, you can see my testimony. It's the first one there. Just go and listen to it. So he went and listened to my testimony because his next email, uh, trying to convince me that his heresy isn't heresy, was uh, about my testimony. And then he told me I needed to watch some gospel video and this and that and the other. And, and I kind of got a kick out of the whole thing, although sad for him that he's so caught up in this heresy. You, you know, Jesus says, come follow me. And those who are believers, follow him. I'm going to follow him. And his disciples followed him. They came to him. And this is what you did when you became a follower of Jesus. You, you became a Christian. You're following Christ. It isn't that you prayed a prayer in your bed or, or, or at the front of a church. It, that's, that's not what made you a Christian. 
It isn't that you you repeated words behind some person who's saying, repeat these words after me. That's not what made you a Christian. It's that you became a follower of Jesus. And what comes with this calling to Christ in salvation is is an ordination to service. And for these, it was formal discipleship in the ancient sense. That is, okay, I'm going to leave my family behind. I'm going to leave my job behind. I'm actually going to live with my rabbi, with my master. It it means leaving home and constant travel. They move around teaching. And and that's part of what these 12 did. They actually did that. And it was an ordination for service. But I think what we see through this in naming these people, Peter, Simon, who becomes Peter, and James and John, the sons of thunder, is that God's intent through Jesus was to change the world using common people. We are the means by which God affects the world. It's not that Peter and James and John were full of Christian maturity. The moment they met Jesus, they were fishermen. They had all the common struggles that people have. You see, in Peter, he's always contradicting Jesus. And you see him even denying Jesus at the cross. And James and John, they're a little better They're the sons of thunder. You find uh, at the time when Jesus is about to die, they're greedy of position. Uh, Make me to sit on your right hand and left hand when you come into your kingdom. And their mother even gets involved. Mrs. Zebedee gets in there and says, make my sons to be important people in your kingdom. I love the story of the man who's going around casting out demons in the name of Jesus, but he's not one of Jesus' followers. He's not one of the twelve. And, and James and John go, hey, can we call down fire upon the guy? Can we call heavenly artillery? You know, ooh, blow the guy up. Can we do that? He says, no, you can't do that. These are examples of what God does with people who serve him. Peter and James and John are just ordinary men, folks. They're ordinary people. They're just like you. You are no different from Peter or James or Thaddeus or Matthew or Thomas. You're no different. And a calling to salvation is a calling to serve him. You you can be eight years old, sitting here, eight, nine years old, and go, what can I do? Follow Jesus. Eventually, you'll do something for him. Now, right now, it means obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. right? It's pretty simple. Children get one rule from the Bible. Follow Jesus by following your parents. Listen to mom and dad. But over time, God will give you more responsibilities and you'll begin to actually follow Jesus in some sort of maybe even more formal capacity. Maybe God will actually burden your heart to go into pastoral ministries, young men, or to become a missionary. Or even for you young ladies to say, I would be willing to be a missionary's wife. I'll never forget, this was years before I met my wife, I was dating a young lady and and one night, she looked at me and she said, I will never be a pastor's wife. That ended our conversation, you know. Well, it was nice knowing you. She, and she didn't. She married a, a guy who was not a pastor. I mean, she followed through with that. That's fine. But she wasn't willing to do this. 
She didn't want to do this. Maybe some of you, God would lead you to do that. But whatever capacity God brings you to, you serve him. And you'll see here that he will not only call you to serve him, but he'll empower you to serve him. This is letter B. It says that he might send them forth to preach and have power to heal sickness and cast out devils. God's will is always backed by his divine power. They had power to preach. And their message was divinely inspired, directed by God, its impact directed by God, so they would go out and preach. This is how the multitudes heard of Jesus from Idumea down south or from Tyre and Sidon to the north or even across the Jordan. The message of Jesus was spreading as, as the disciples, later apostles, would go out and share the message of the gospel through the regions of the Middle East. Many of the churches that were established were in places where these people were from. These people would hear the message of the gospel that Jesus had died but had risen again. This is the one we were already following. Praise be to God. And, and this is how the church was founded. And they were empowering. Jesus said, I will give you power to do this. Now, they had power to, over demons. They healed people. They cast out these demons. We don't do that today. You'll notice when Jesus commissions his disciples at the end, he doesn't say anything about casting out demons. He says, go and make disciples of the nations. But I think in that sense, our service is ordained by God. There is intentionality to what God is doing in us. And I want to make this crystal clear. God's purpose in saving you is so that you would do good works for him. This is why we're saved. To let our light so shine before men that they would see our good works. It is not to rescue America politically. That's not why we're here. It is not to somehow create a vast world economy based on capitalism. That's not why we're here. Although I support both of those things. Why we're here is to serve Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. And my friends, if I was Chinese and I was living in China right now, I would be in a communist regime that is, that is certainly far from the freedoms we have in America, and I would still be called to be a follower of Jesus and be the best Chinese citizen I could be as a follower of Jesus. So no matter where you are, this is what we're called to be. To, to actually be a shining light so that our lives are pleasing to him. So that other people can see in us Jesus shining out everywhere we go. But to do that, there's one essential quality remaining. This is letter C. Your loyalty is essential. You see that last verse there in verse 19, Judas Iscariot? How is he described? I, you read John's gospel and you find John had real antipathy toward Judas. He just didn't like Judas at all. He keeps saying, and Judas, and then he adds in these little parenthetical statements, 
who was a thief, <laughs> who was a betrayer. And Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. This loyal Judas turned against Jesus. You, God desires for you to do service to Him, but your loyalty to Him is essential in doing that service. If you're not loyal to Christ, then your service is not really for God. I, I just shudder to think how many preachers, how many Sunday school teachers, how many teen leaders are, are in our churches here in this country and their loyalty is not to King Jesus. Their, their desire is to make a name for themselves. Their desire is to influence other people. Maybe their desire is just money, whatever it is. But their loyalty is not to Jesus Christ. And because of their lack of loyalty to Him, they do all sorts of things that betray the idea that they are followers of Him. Their lives are broken. Their testimony shattered because of their disloyalty to Jesus. What would it be like, friends, if, if you could go on YouTube and see an image of me and someone had a gun to my head and said, are you a Christian or not? And I said, nope, not me. Oh, no, no. Uh, um, not part of that group. Bunch of weirdos. What would you think? That's our pastor. Why is he saying that? Well, he's got a gun to his head. Is that any reason to turn against Jesus? I've told you this before. Someone jumps in my car to carjack me. I'm going to see how fast I can drive. This is going to be fun. I don't know how fast my electric car can go, but I'll find out. And, and when I get up over 100, I'm going to look at that fellow who's got that gun. I'm going to say, hey, buddy, let me tell you something. I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven when I hit this tree up here. I don't know where you're headed. But I'd really encourage you to become a follower of Jesus right about now. You say you wouldn't do that. Do you not know me? This is exactly what I would do. And I would have a lot of fun doing it. And if I, can you imagine going about 125 miles an hour and roaring into glory that way? I mean, you know, skidding down the street of gold right there, just coming to a stop as my, as my soul ends up in heaven. Maybe I drag that poor guy with me, maybe, or not. I don't know. Hopefully he realizes I'm serious and not insane. But the truth is, hey, you're going to threaten me with heaven, as they say? Fine. I look, I look at Judas and I go, he was so messed up because he's living for here. And all the believers, the people who claim to follow Jesus, who live for here, are disloyal to him. And you can do all these other things, but if you're disloyal to him, they mean nothing. They're meaningless. And even though we have the best general in the world, our responsibility is to be one of his soldiers. And as Jesus has invaded our world with the gospel, we now, as his soldiers, take that message, take that life, and we bring it to everybody we meet in the community. I'm not talking about personal evangelism here. I'm talking about the way we live. The way we live our lives, the way we talk to other people, the, the way we just express ourselves. 
All of that is about showing the world in which we live that we are followers of the general. There are, uh, there's a story that uh, has been made into movies, Ben-Hur. You know that story, Ben-Hur? Ben-Hur was written by a guy named Lou Wallace. Uh, Lou Wallace was a general in the Northern Army, and uh, like most Northern generals in the Civil War, wasn't very good. <laughs> um, the South had all the good generals. Um, Longstreet, General Longstreet came up with a system, a military system called the Buddy Rush. He didn't call it that. That's what they call it today. It's still being used in the military today. In fact, most military scholars say if, if uh, the South had followed Longstreet's advice, they would have won the war handily over the North. Longstreet was just way ahead of his time. Well, Lou Wallace was way behind his time, I guess. He got his army out in the middle of nowhere and got lost. I think it was the Battle of Shiloh. He got lost. And here he, here he was, a mile behind enemy lines. And a, and a note comes to him from General Grant. And, and, and poor Lou Wallace, confused, a little bit dazed, a little bit, um, well, just out of his league. He doesn't follow his general. And because of that, the Battle of Shiloh ends up being a really horrible battle. If, if he shows up, even on the right side of the battle, if he shows up, the North probably wins that battle. The war is probably shortened by some consideration. But because Wallace doesn't follow his general's orders, Shiloh drags on, the war drags on. And if he had just marched a little bit to the north of where he was at, he would have defeated all of the southern army at that point. He would have taken everybody captive, and it probably would have ended the Civil War at that point. My friends, Lew Wallace was a rotten general. Now, he went out and he wrote Ben-Hur, because while he wasn't a very good general, he was a really good Christian. And while he wasn't so good at following his orders of his earthly general, he was really good at following the orders of his heavenly general. And Lou Wallace wrote a book about a man in Christendom who becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Ben-Hur is one of the really good gospel stories. It's fictional, but really good gospel stories of the last century. Oh, maybe late 19th century. Really good story. And many people have come to Christ through reading Ben-Hur because the one thing Lou Wallace got right was following his heavenly commander. What about you? Can you look at your life? Jesus is the general. He's powerful. He can do it all. Am I really following him? Am I really living my life for him? Am I a faithful soldier in his army? Am I obeying his commands? Am I obeying his commands? Am I following his orders? Or am I disloyal to him?
And do I have a shattered testimony? That's what's set before you in this hour. Who is Jesus? He's our general. Follow him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. I pray that you would please use this in our hearts in the next few moments to help us grow spiritually before I finish praying. Maybe you're here and you're not even in our army. You're not a believer. You're not a Christian. You don't follow Jesus at all. You say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm not saved. Would you slip up your hand? I want to pray for you. You say, Pastor, I'm not a Christian. I'm not saved. I'm not a follower of Jesus. I follow something else, someone else, but it's not Jesus. You just raise your hand. I'll pray for you. Anybody like that at all? Slip up your hand. Do it now. I want to pray for you. You say, Pastor, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not, I'm not really doing very well. Truth be told, I'm not really being very obedient to his commands. I know he's the great general, but I'm really a terrible soldier. And I've not been very loyal. Maybe you've struggled to be the kind of husband you need to be in your marriage. You haven't been very loyal to God and to Jesus by following his commands about what kind of husband you need to be. Maybe you're, you haven't been the kind of wife that God wants you to be. Maybe you're a single adult and, and you, everybody around here thinks you're so godly, but really back when you're alone or when you're around other people, the ungodliness that's in your heart comes out and you're disloyal to Jesus around them. Maybe that's where you're at. Or maybe you're a young person here and you haven't been doing the one command your general gives you to obey your parents. Now maybe that's you. I don't know. But if you're here and you say, Pastor, the general, he, he came down and did an inspection of my heart this morning and found where I've got some places where I'm wanting or I'm lacking. Would you pray for me? Is there anybody like that? I want to pray for you. Yes, I'll pray for you. Yes, I'll pray for you. Anybody else, Pastor, pray for me. Yes, young man, I'll pray for you. Yes, ma'am, I'll pray for you. Who else? Pastor, pray for me. The general's inspecting my heart and he's finding there's some areas of my life where I'm lacking. Anybody else? Yes, sir, pray for you. Lord, you see those who are responding here and now, and I ask you, dear God, please do your work. Please, Holy Spirit, use this simple sermon to help us become more faithful in following you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. The pianist will play a hymn of invitation. Would you go to the Lord as she plays? Pray for those who've responded to the service this morning.